Shibomi, do you often quote Socrates? Do you often quote Socrates? No, I don't either. This will be the first time I've ever quoted him. Um, I don't know what that says about me. Does anybody ever quote Socrates in here? Anybody? I bet Ete Ray does. Ete Ray quotes Socrates, I'm sure. Yes, of course. Eleni may, may quote Socrates. Socrates. Anyway, um, some of you who know your history, you know he was... He walked the earth around 400 B.C. and he said, Wonder is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I ran across this quote some weeks ago and I really liked it. And I got to wondering about, it sounds a lot like a biblical quote that some of you will recognize. I have a hunch that Socrates plagiarized Solomon who lived around 950 B.C. You may remember Solomon said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon probably plagiarized the psalmist and the psalmist probably plagiarized Job. Job, we don't know when Job lived, uh, but he's quite, it may be the oldest book in the Bible. Some, some would say that he lived 1500 B.C. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I think for the born-again Christian, both of these sentiments are true. In one sense, they are essentially communicating the same reality. The fear of the Lord is to be filled with the wonder of who He is. And to be filled with the wonder of who He is is to reverence the One who is responsible for all the general splendor that we encounter. I was thinking this week, and I've had this thought often. I don't know if it's an original thought. But I've often thought that men and denominations and preachers and teachers often teach more than they know. Um, it's like in many presentations of the Gospel, it's always an appeal to the flesh and it's always an appeal to common sense. It's always an appeal to human wisdom. Do you know? You know this, right? Those of you who have been around for a while, the Gospel's way bigger than common sense. It's way bigger than human wisdom, right? So Rohan feels good. <laughs> so, oh, that's Liana. Okay. Thank you, Liana. Appreciate that. You know, human beings like to assimilate and collate and organize. And uh, what's the other one? I had a good one. What was it? There was one other. What is it? We always like to formulate. And I think what men and denominations have done is they take the Bible and they like to stick it in a formula. Now, if you were raised in some certain denomination, you know the formula. You know that denominational formula. How do you become a Christian? It's one, two, three, do this, you're in, right? Almost every denomination has this kind of thing. It makes becoming a Christian sound like balancing your checkbook or like some self-help program. You know, three steps to a better marriage or three steps to organizing your finances. Oftentimes, Christianity is presented this way and I just want to make the point, it ain't like that. Okay? Everybody knows what the word ain't means, right? You've been around long enough. It ain't like that. 
Biblical Christianity is supernatural. Wonder is the beginning of wisdom. And if there is no wonder in your professed Christianity, then you have not met Jesus Christ yet. John chapter 9 is full of wonder. There's way more wonder, way more awe, way more mystery, way more fear and trembling to becoming a Christian than any denominational formula I've ever seen. You know, when you bounce into the formulas, just realize this is man's attempt to consolidate and control a supernatural process that only God is in charge of. And so when I talk to people who who want to come to Christ and who want to be baptized, I, I talk to them about this. This is not like the third step. Okay? You know, it's not, oh, I'm going to pray the prayer and then I'm going to get baptized and then I become a member of the church. This is all good. These are all good things. But if God hasn't done the miracle, it's just religion, right? And if you haven't responded to the miracle, it's just religion. And there will be many, as the Lord tells us, Matthew chapter 7 who will say to Him, Lord, Lord, and the Lord will say, I do not know you. People who trust in the formula. But how could there not be mystery, right? He's God. Would you expect it would be something that you could manage and control and fully understand and grapple with and process? Would, Would you expect that it would just be like one, two, three... Simple? Would you expect that when you're dealing with I am? Would you expect that? I mean, I'm always astonished. People actually expect that I'm supposed to understand everything and the Bible is my answer to everything. No! Don't get caught in that trap. Don't let some skeptic put you in a corner. You don't have to know all the answers. You just know the most essential one. Right? God doesn't explain everything to us. There's a lot of mystery here. And what I like to encourage, especially young people, let the mystery stand. Let it stand. Don't try to explain Jehovah God because you cannot do it. You cannot comprehend Him. You cannot explain Him. Let the mystery stand. Let the skeptics rail if they want. I don't have a problem standing in front of the, you know, the brainiacs and just simply appealing to the Word of God. I just appeal to the Word of God. What does God say? It doesn't matter if they understand it or not. What does God say? Beloved, I think it's important for us to, as, as I think I said last week, to be in that place where we can simply say, God has said. So, when a person becomes a Christian, it's a big deal. It's It's miraculous. It's mysterious. It's full of wonder and awe. Amen? It's what you see on the pages of Scripture. The angels know it's a big deal. What do the angels do when a sinner repents? What do the angels do? If you read the Message Bible, which is a paraphrase, so I don't like to quote it often, Eugene Peterson said, there's a party! The angels know it's a big deal. They know it's a work of God. They know it's not a... Religious formula, they know 
that it's the miraculous work of God. I love to read about conversions. And I've, I've asked some of you. Most of the time, if you've been around very long, I've asked you, if I've had a chance, I've asked you about your conversion. I love conversion stories because they're so radically different. God can save in the pigsty. God can save in the pew. And oh, guess what? If you know your church history, God saves in the pulpit. I mean, I studied about a guy in seminary, Elias Keach, 17th century a Baptist English minister preaching in the U.S. He was converted while he was preaching. Okay, it's a great story. The people in the, in the congregation thought he was having a stroke or something, or they thought he was, you know, having some kind of physical condition. But he confessed later in tears that God had converted him while he was preaching. Right? He knew all the stuff. He'd done all the formula, but that mysterious thing that only God can do was missing from his life. There's another, I guess the most famous, who's the most famous conversion in Christianity? Who would it be? Who would you think? Who would you guess? Other than you. Because you didn't deserve to be, you didn't deserve to be converted. You were, a, you were a, yeah, you were a wanton sinner. But who would be the most famous conversion? Yes, the Apostle Paul. Another religious guy doing a religious thing. Jesus shows up. Knocks him on his hind parts. It says, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Paul is blinded in the experience. But Paul receives his sight and ultimately goes and shares the Gospel with the Gentiles. Paul, Keech, they went from being blind men in a spiritual sense to seeing. This is what happens. This is what denominations cannot do. Denominations cannot do this. Only God does this. Okay? And you remember what Paul's testimony was before King Agrippa. God is sending me to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sin. It happened to Elias Keech. It happened to the Apostle Paul. If you're a Christian tonight, it's happened to you. And it's happening to this blind man in John chapter 9. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It's in my testimony about my conversion. Wherefore I was blind, now I see. If you're a Christian, you understand. You understand what the man is saying tonight. It's John chapter 9. I love it. It's just a par- it's Yes, it's a true account. Jesus healed a man born blind. It's a true account. But what it is really is a parable. Okay? It's a parable about true conversion. We touched on this last week. We saw the sequence of, of the man who was born blind and how he received his sight. Notice how it happened. It always happens like this. It never doesn't happen like this for someone to receive their spiritual sight. Jesus noticed them. It always starts there. Jesus noticed them. Jesus engaged them. Jesus told the man what he must do. The man believed. The man responded. The man came back seeing. Right? This is, this is a parable of born-again Christianity. It always happens like this. It never doesn't happen like this. It always happens like this. You can't reverse the order. (laughs) Jesus noticed him. 
Jesus engaged him. It always happens like this. All the way through the Scriptures. So I hope we understand the sequence. And I don't want us to ever forget John 9.3. I've told you probably this is the third time. Much of the world hates John 9.3. Unbelievers hate John 9.3. Church members and superficial you know, lukewarm Christians hate John 9.3. Nobody wants God to be that sovereign and that worthy of glory except the true believer. Why was this man born blind? That the works of God may be seen. People take offense. You mean a man was born blind so God could be glorified? People take offense at this. Now, I, I don't understand... Well, it's just pure arrogance for creatures to take offense at the Creator, right? This is God's business. This is God's business. What He does in His creatures' lives, this is God's business. And you don't need to be in the business of critiquing Him for it. If you are, I lovingly say, repent. But I love this text. For the glory of God. The true believer understands that why is there something rather than nothing? We talked about it last week. Why is there something rather For the glory of God. That includes me. That includes my trials, my disabilities, my difficulties, my victories, my, my blessings. It's all about God. It's about the glory of God. Man, I love John 9.3. I had a guy got up. He got, he got red-faced at me one time as I was talking to him about John 9.3. We were in a Bible study class. And his face just got like... I thought his, face, I thought his head was going to explode, right? No, God can't be that sovereign. God can't be that big. God would... You know, he had a cartoon. Cartoon Jesus. So, John 9 is about spiritual sight. It's about scales falling off. It's seeing for the first time. We talked about it last week. It's seeing for the first time that Jesus is supreme in heaven and earth. He's my highest pleasure He's my greatest treasure. It's seeing like that. If you don't see Christ like that, then you have not yet begun to see. You are still spiritually blind. If you don't see Christ as the greatest person in the cosmos that you are pursuing with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you haven't seen Christ. You haven't seen Him yet. You are still spiritually blind. It's the wonder of seeing the beauty of Christ. That's really Christianity. (laughs) Okay? Socrates is right. Wonder is the beginning of wisdom because true wonder is seeing your Creator and seeing your Redeemer and realizing He's got to be the top priority in my life. You know? He transcends my spouse. He transcends my children. Of course, if you get Jesus right, you're able to actually love your spouse and your children in a way that pleases the Lord. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. Jesus claimed to be God. Then we saw it a week or two ago. Jesus authenticated that claim by healing a man born blind. He did it on the Sabbath. He's provoking the Pharisees. He's trying to pull them out of their religion and pull them to Himself. This is on the Sabbath, as I said. Why does He do it? Two reasons. He's God. He does whatever He pleases. He's not constrained by their rules. This is one thing He's saying to them. Hey, I do whatever I please. I'm Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Secondly, He's confronting their self-righteousness. 
which is a blessing that He would do that to bring them out of self-righteousness. And we know a handful of Pharisees came, came out of their, their religion, right? They came out of their love and, for religion and came to Christ. So last week we saw this man who was formerly blind. He was grilled by the Pharisees. He was abandoned by his parents, which brings us to verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Of course, they're referring to Jesus. This is just a technical phrase they would use to constrain someone to tell the truth. Speak the truth as before God. That's what that means. And this is what they're saying. Tell us the truth we've already determined about Jesus. We want you to be a witness to what we believe is true. That's what we want you to do. Tell us what we know is true, even though they're way off base. They believe Jesus is um, a phony, that He's a fake, that He's a sham. Tell us, tell us that. Tell us the truth. Tell us uh, that He is a sinner. Evidence aside, witnesses aside, testimonies aside, miracles aside, tell us this man is not who He claims to be. Tell us that. That's what they wanted to hear. That's what the Pharisees wanted to hear. Oh, wait a minute. It sounds just like some of the people I talk to. Probably some of the people you talk to, right? They will not hear the truth about Christ. But what do we do? We just lovingly keep sharing, right? We just lovingly keep sharing. We lovingly keep sharing. That's what we do. Listen, I don't want you to be intimidated in the world. You have the most cogent worldview that's out there. This is what C.S. This is C.S. Lewis's argument. You have the most cogent worldview. He says, not only do I believe in Christianity because it's true, I believe in it because by it I see everything else. Everything else seems to make sense to me through the lens of Christi- biblical Christianity. You have the most cogent, rational worldview, logical worldview, right? Do not be intimidated out there. Okay? Do not be intimidated. Stand your ground. Of course God is there. Look at the biology. And I won't go into it, but I'm writing a book about it. Look at the biology. Yeah, He's there. He's there. There's no question He's there. So stand your ground, beloved. Stand your ground. One thing we've seen here, as I've said to you before in this Gospel, one of the sub-themes is this unreasoning, unthinking, unyielding unbelief. MacArthur calls it unbelievable unbelief. These guys will not believe. Jesus, as I mentioned last week, Jesus is going to call a guy out of the tomb. Everybody knows Lazarus was dead. He was dead four days. Everybody in Jerusalem knew it. But now he's walking around. Now what would the reasonable man do? You tell me. What would the reasonable man do? I think I'd be on my knees in front of Jesus Christ. Verse 26. Verse 25, I'm sorry. He therefore answered, whether Jesus is a sinner, I don't know. But I know this, I was blind and now I see, right? It's in my, 
It's in my uh, testimony. It's perfect. You take all the mystery and the wonder and the awe and the fear and the trembling and the theological knowledge, you pull it into one sentence, you can't do any better than that. I was blind, but now I see. Now I see. I think it's beautiful. I was just like, I was just like this guy, man. I, I, I was just a religious guy sitting in Sunday school. Somebody read the Bible and I heard him. I'd been in church all my life. I was 28 years old and I, I heard it. I heard the voice of God. And everything changed. God noticed me sitting in my Sunday school class. <laughs> he engaged me through His Word. And the rebel, Jim, began to see. I love John 9. It don't... Yeah, it's an amazing physical miracle, but don't miss the meaning. It's about your conversion. It's about how God saves His people. 1 Corinthians 4.6 This is what happens. For the God who said... this He's talking about creation. The Apostle Paul is referencing creation here. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the One who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is the work of God. It's a wonderful thing. It has nothing to do with religious formulas. It has absolutely nothing to do with denominational formulas. 1 Peter 2.9 We were called out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. Verse 26 and 27, They said therefore to Him, What did He do? How did He open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become His disciples too. Do you? They've already asked this guy this question once and He's already answered it. And some commentators believe that He's being sarcastic. I don't. I believe this is Genuine, I think he's thinking, hey, maybe these guys now are starting to get it. Maybe the light's coming on. Maybe they realize that what has happened here is, is a divine miracle. That, that God has healed a man born blind, which no one has ever heard of this before. Maybe they're starting to think, maybe Jesus is God. I really think He is inviting them to consider the claims of Christ. I think he thinks these guys are starting to get it. I think he's saying, well, only a biased, prejudiced, closed, dead, willful, arrogant person would reject this evidence. I think it's what he's thinking. I really do. But we find out sadly that they are rejecting. It's why I told you last week, and I won't go into it, men are without excuse. Men are without excuse. Verses 28 and 29. They reviled Him and said, You are His disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know this guy, and we do not know where He is from. You know how it is. You get into a debate with somebody, and, and your points are better. You know what happens, right? I mean, when you start winning the debate, what happens? Where does it go? It becomes a personal attack. Okay? Most, you know, if, if it's a contentious kind of debate. If they can't get you on fact, they get you on 
you know, some kind of ad hominem attack, some kind of personal attack. And this is what these guys are doing. The, the Pharisees, they're attacking Him. They reviled Him, claiming to be disciples of Moses. They're, they're do, they've done what many denominations have done. Right? They've made Moses into an idol. They've made the Sabbath into an idol. Right? It's what denominations do. It's kind of like the Catholics and Mary. It's kind of like Eastern Orthodox and the icon. It's, it's kind of like uh, Protestant. It's kind of like Protestants and the prosperity preachers, right? <laughs> okay? So, <clears throat> yeah. And this is their error. They took some legitimate truth, a revelation of God, some individual used of God, and they turned it into a pet doctrine. Turned it into an idol. This is what religion and denominationalism always does. It takes your eyes off Christ. And listen, when, when, if you're in a church, okay, if you're in a church and you're constantly talking about do this, look at that guy, do this, look at that woman, you know, it's all about Mary and the sacraments, it's about the icon, it's about, it's about the superstition, it's, it's about this great Protestant... Uh, health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. I mean, when you hear this stuff, you, you know it's not about Jesus. You know that's why Francis Chan, which is maybe one of the best preachers in the States, contemporarily speaking, you know what he did, right? He quit. I mean, he built this huge church from like five people. Let me say it right. God did it. And Chan, got, he said, I got so tired of hearing my own name, I heard my own name more than I heard the name of Jesus, right? I don't like that. I'm uncomfortable with that. Anyway, that's just some free stuff. These guys love to claim to be sons of Abraham and disciples of Moses. They trusted in their ethnicity and their religious traditions. You remember what Jesus said in John 5, 45-46, Do not think I will accuse you before My Father. The one who will accuse you is who? Moses. Moses will accuse you. I will not accuse you. Your idol will accuse you and whom you have set your hope. If you believed in Moses, you would believe in Me because He wrote of Me. Powerful indictment. Yeah, John chapter 5. I'll pick up here in verse 30. The man answered and said to them, well, this is an amazing thing that you do not know where He's from and yet He opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is an amazing thing, he says. A divine miracle has happened. This is an amazing thing. How could you choose to ignore this? This is like... It really is kind of a backhanded indictment of them, right? I mean, this guy's putting it together. This guy's doing the calculus. He's, put it, he, he, he's, he's doing the math in his head. Well, if this guy's not from God, he couldn't do this. He must be from God because he did this. It's not hard. <laughs> right? You know, I always tell you, Christianity's not rocket science. It's whether you're real, willing to submit to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the end of it. 
You know, you can run at it with your logic. Even if you run at, run at it with your logic, if you're honest, if you're not, you know, using all your presuppositions, secular presuppositions, you'll end up, you'll end up where C.S. Lewis ended up. He was running from God. Clear thinking. It's not simply clear thinking. We understand, I've already made the point that there's a supernatural element here, but clear thinking can bring you to a place where you see that Jesus is no man. He is more than that. So the guy, the guy is just, you know, he's done the math. This must be God. And he's using Old Testament teaching, right? If I regard wickedness in my hope, the Lord will not hear me. Job, pardon me, that's Psalm 66, 18. Conversely, Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cries. He's just doing the biblical scriptural math here. This guy must be of God. He doesn't know he is God yet, but he knows he must be of God. He knows that. And any honest person would have to at least acknowledge that. He is of God. Or he could not do this thing. They answered and said to him, the Pharisees said to him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? And they put him out. We talked about this last week. This is why his parents wouldn't stand up for him. They didn't want to be put out. To be put out of the synagogue, you were, you were worse than a leper. No one would do business with you. No one would speak to you. You were a cultural outcast. You were outside the welfare system. It was over for you. Persona non grata. It was over for you. It was an awful, awful thing to occur and I just want to bring this up again. We talked about it last Sunday. Sometimes it's scary to profess Jesus publicly. You know this. If you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian very long and you've walked in the world very long, you know there's something, you know, it's it's easy to talk about God generically. It's really easy. And listen, I, I challenge every Christian who claims, everyone who claims to be a Christian, I challenge you, don't ever talk about God generically. 88% of the world talks about God generically. You need to speak the name of Jesus Christ. That'll perk up the conversation, I guarantee you. That'll break it up. <laughs> right? Or you'll actually be being used of God to communicate the most essential truth that can be communicated. Jesus Christ is God and nobody else is. Beloved, this is, a, this, is a, this is what you do if you love your friends and neighbors and family. and colleagues. This is what you do. You point them to Christ. We don't talk about God generically. Sometimes it's costly to profess Jesus publicly. Some of you know this. Some of you have paid a cost. There's been a price to being His disciple in the world. I'd love to hear your story. I'd love for you to come tell me your story. It just... Jesus said, the world hates me and they will hate you. And so it's inevitable that this happens. You know, Paul's conversion, if you read Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, um, 
God tells Ananias, I will show Paul all that he must suffer for my sake. And we know that Paul suffered greatly. None of us in here will ever suffer like the Apostle Paul. I'm pretty sure. You can go look at the account of all of Paul's sufferings in the book of Corinthians. But Paul did say this to Timothy. And you know this text, right? 2 Timothy 3.12 All who desire to live godly will be what? Persecuted. It's not if you'll be persecuted, it's you will be persecuted. It will happen. If you're a Christian and you're speaking the name of Jesus Christ in the world, it will happen. It's not possible to be a disciple and it not happen. It will happen. And I told you last week, it's not that we're out there being obnoxious. People hate the name. They hate the exclusivity of the name. Biblical Christians claim that Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God, the only way to be reconciled to the Creator. And so we're called bigots and intolerant and, you know, that kind of stuff. So the world hates it when we just say what it is. And I just want to encourage you, just say what it is. And let God be glorified in it, right? Whatever happens, happens. Just say what it is. And if it costs, it costs. Let it cost. It's going to cost this guy. And what's going to happen? They put him out. Okay, you tell me what happens. What happens when they put the guy out? A really beautiful thing happens here. What happens? Pardon me? Jesus goes to him. Do you not know Jesus will come to you? Do you not know that He will? Do you not know Him well enough to know that He will come to you? If it costs, He will come to you. And I promise you, He's better. His, his, a new and powerful revelation of Christ in your life is way better than whatever it costs you. I promise. I'm an old man. I've had it happen to me multiple times. Christ is better. You know, when you, when you chicken out, you know, when you're in that moment and you chicken out, and you, you just relive that, and you go, mm, you hate that, and you, hate, and you have to talk to God about it, you feel like a punk, you know? Listen, just do it! Just go ahead and do it! Just do it. You will be happy that you did. So, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put Him out, and... As Alex said, Jesus came and found him. Jesus found him. God sought him out. Jesus noticed him. Initially, Jesus gave him new eyes and then he got persecuted and Jesus came to him. This is how the God of the Bible is. He's a faithful God. I couldn't help but think of Jeremiah's words in Lamentations. You know that dirge of Lamentations. And then you have these words. The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He's a faithful God. I'm just challenging you to believe that and go out in the world and, and, and live like you believe he's, he's faithful and will show up. Whatever, whatever price you pay for being a Christian, his, He is greater compensation than whatever price you pay. You know? That would be a good time for everybody to say amen, but I'm not, you know, we're, we're, we tend not to be like that, but, you know, it's cool. But 
He's your reward, beloved. If it costs you everything, He is your reward. He is. He's faithful. He is a faithful God. Continuing here in verse 35, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is He? Jesus says, you have, been, you have both seen Him and He is the one talking with you. And He said, Lord, I believe. And He worshipped Him. So, did you notice the progression of this man in John 9? He called Jesus a, he called Jesus a man uh, at first, verse 11. And in verse 17, He called Him a prophet. And now He calls Him Lord and He worships Him. Right? So here's a man who's received a spiritual sight. He sees that Jesus, he's the, the kind of sight that understands that Jesus is, yeah, He's God. It's the ultimate significance of John 9. So, I, I'm going to stop and say, are you like this man? Because I know you're a sinner. He was a sinner and I know you're a sinner. Uh, just like I am. But are you like this man? Do you now see? Do you now see? Wonder is the beginning of wisdom because Jesus Christ is wonder. Do you see? Does it, does it change the way you live? This is a great... I love, I love John. Chapter 9, verses 39 to 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, those who uh, see may become blind, and the Pharisees said, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So, you know, Jesus has said a couple of times, if you're paying attention, at least one time already, back in, I think it's John 3.17, Jesus said, I did not come to judge, I came to save. He's going to say it again in the Gospel of John. So how do we understand this? Jesus is saying, I, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. And then Jesus is saying later that, that, uh, that I have come to judge. What is, what's the point? What, how, do we, how do we understand this? Both things are true. They're both true. Right? They're both true. Every time I preach, it's happening. Right? Every time I preach, God is saving, God is judging. It, 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 it's just, both things are true. Just by virtue of the fact He came to save, those who reject Him will be judged. It's uh, just the logical truth. And there is this, you know, biblical truth that God judicially blinds men and women who reject. At some point, He just judicially blinds them. It's kind of like the Pharaoh thing. He will harden their hearts. And I think I read this to you a couple of weeks ago, but let me read it to you one more time. John 12, 37, 39, and 40. Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. For this they could not um, believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes. Judicial blinding. You say, I don't like, I don't like a God who would do that. Well, you don't like the biblical God then. He does do it. <laughs> okay? So, don't play games with the God of the Bible. Don't do it. 
What does the writer of Hebrews say several times? Today, if you hear His voice, come and receive salvation. So these men are culpable in their unbelief. It's not that they don't see, it's that they do. We talked about that at length last week. Jesus confirms that in verse 41. If you were truly blind and did not see and know and understand, you would have no sin. But since you do see and refuse to submit to God, your sin remains. They, they not only had the natural revelation, they had the incarnate revelation, right? They actually knew the Old Testament by heart. They knew the Old Testament revelation of God. These men are culpable. They are culpable. And they're standing there playing games with God. So this chapter is both sobering and awesome. Sobering in that we see man's capacity for willful spiritual blindness. And we see how dead religion actually separates men from God. It's awesome in that we see the beautiful picture of, of a seeking Savior, Jesus Christ, seeking sinners, right? With that supernatural work that only He can do, the John 3, 3 thing, you must be born again, the Ezekiel 36, 26 thing. God says, I'll remove your heart of stone, I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. So the biblical Gospel is full of wonder and awe and mystery and fear and trembling and the supernatural. Don't you think any less about it. If you're in a church and they dumb it down to three steps, you, 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 you probably are pretty sure that the leadership does not understand the Bible. It is not three steps. It's a seeking of God. It's a being changed by God. It's all supernatural. You know, when people want to be baptized, I just I go through the whole thing, right? You know, you know baptism is not going to save you, right? <laughs> right? You know that. And I'm not even going to baptize you unless you really want it. Unless you understand to be baptized means I'll be a disciple. I don't want to baptize any more people who are not disciples. I've baptized enough of them. I've stopped doing it. The last couple of people we had, uh, poor Claudia, I put Claudia through it and I put uh, uh, Dwayne through it. I said, I'm tired of baptizing people who don't come to church anymore. That's a pretty good sign. Right? I'm tired of that. I, I will not do it. Unless you, unless you come to me and press me and stay after me, I will not baptize you. There's too much... You know, there's too much at stake here. And so I press the people that I baptize. I press them to confess to me. They know their disciples. This is not about becoming a member of ICM. This is about, being a, uh, this is about belonging to Christ. This is about giving myself away to Christ. That's what it is. Right? That's what it is. So, um, I love this guy. Wherefore I was blind, now I see. Okay, I'm going to close with Spurgeon's conversion. Okay, I'm done. Um, I don't know how long I preached. I'm sorry, I forgot to look at my watch. Um, i got to stop doing that. One of the most famous conversions in church history, Charles Spurgeon. 14-year-old kid, I think. Walks in. It, it, there was a big snowstorm, so he couldn't make it to his regular church. He ducks into this little teeny Methodist church. The preacher can't even come because of the snow, right? So some uneducated tradesman, he walks up, he steps up into the pulpit. And... This is all he's got. 
His text is Isaiah 45.22. Look unto Me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Do you see why I'm closing with this, with this illustration? Look unto Me. It's what the guy in John 9 did. It's what every true Christian does, right? He says, Look unto Me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And then the, the tradesman, he finished like this. Now look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to look. You can be the biggest fool in town and you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. The text says, look unto me, but many of you are looking to yourselves. But it ain't no use looking there, he said. Then he finished. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. And he looked down and he saw Spurgeon there. Spurgeon was just broken. He was just a broken teenager. And the man says, young man, you look very miserable. Why don't you look to Jesus Christ? Look, look, look. All you have to do is look. I love this conversion story. And Spurgeon says, God did a work. And he said, I could have looked until I looked my eyes away. Wonder is the beginning of wisdom. And if you don't know the wonder of Jesus Christ, I lovingly say to you, examine yourself, as Paul told the Corinthians, to see if you're in the faith. If you're in the faith, you understand what Socrates is saying. You understand what Solomon is saying. You understand what the psalmist is saying. You understand what Job is saying. The wonder of seeing Jesus Christ. It's what John 9 is about. The physical miracle is amazing. What's really amazing is the spiritual miracle. And so I'm lovingly saying to you, are you seeing like this? Do you see like this man? Are you seeing like this man? This is spiritual sight. This is born again sight. This is being born of the Spirit, born from above. This is the supernatural heart plant that God does that no one else can do. Don't get hung up on denominational formulas. If the wonder's not there, there's something wrong. There will be wonder. There will be awe. There will be fear and trembling. There will be mystery. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for John 9. Thank You for noticing me. Thank You for engaging me. Thank You for communicating with me about what I must do. Thank You that You've come for us. Thank You that You are always coming to us. Thank You for this beautiful verse here <laughs> that You found the man when he was put out. What a beautiful truth. What a breathtaking truth. The God who is running two trillion galaxies, He knows me. He's watching my life. And when I suffer loss for the sake of His name, He comes to me He comes to me. Lord, we praise You. We thank You for these truths. 
Help us, Father, take these few moments we have and live radically for You. It's really the only thing that makes sense in light of Your words, in light of eternity. Help us, Father, for we are weak, we are frail. We love You. We praise You. We thank You for this text. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. God bless. Have a great week. I'll see you next time.